The COVID-19 pandemic has created a smokescreen behind which the nuclear industry is hiding some of its more outrageous actions. The official Nuclear Regulatory Commission sanctions to cut back on safety inspections and up to 1,500 workers imported for refueling at nuclear reactors, making social distancing impossible, as positive tests and the illness itself begins to show up in the workforce. But then you hear about yet another far-flung nuclear manipulation, this one by uranium mining operators near the Grand Canyon. And then a genuine nuclear expert tells you, They say the mines are suspending operations and people in our industry are losing jobs and our industry is on the cusp of complete collapse now. They are using this pandemic. Their industry was on the cusp of collapse already because the price of uranium has been really low. It's not the pandemic's fault. It's their own problem for investing in a dying industry. Well, when you hear of yet another smarmy stimulus money grab by the nuclear industry, uranium mining division, that you get yet another glimpse of that awful, dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, COVID-19 the novel coronavirus, continues to provide opportunities for the nuclear industry to grab money it's not entitled to from the stimulus package. We talked the details with Allison Gitlin of the Sierra Club Grand Canyon chapter, where she is conservation coordinator of the Restore and Protect the Greater Grand Canyon campaign. Allison pinpoints how the uranium mining companies are trying to trick a compliant federal administration into giving them big money from the stimulus package, as well as the full range of uranium mining issues faced at the Grand Canyon by Native people, tourists, hikers, and backpackers alike. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than can wedge its way into the COVID-19 news cycle. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 14, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. This week's COVID-19 nuclear update starts with excerpts from an article by Harvey Wasserman in CommonDreams.org. Here's the context for understanding what's going on at nuclear reactors. 
Harvey writes, Atomic reactors are run by a coveted pool of skilled technicians who manage the control rooms, conduct repairs, load and unload nuclear fuel. Because few young students have been entering the field, the core of about 100,000 licensed technicians has been, like the reactors themselves, rapidly aging while declining in numbers. Every reactor control room requires five operators at all times. And as we heard from nuclear engineer and whistleblower Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, he was our featured interview two weeks ago, it is impossible to maintain social distancing within a nuclear reactor control room. Every 18 to 24 months, each reactor must shut for refueling and repairs. This is done by itinerant crews of 1,000 to 1,500 technicians who travel to 58 sites in 29 states, usually staying 30 to 60 days, and they often board with local families, in RVs, hotels, or at Airbnbs. Some 54 reactors have been scheduled for refuel repair in 2020, but there is no official organized program to test the workers for the coronavirus as they move around the country. Keeping that in mind, we revisit the Limerick nuclear reactor, approximately 40 miles away from Philadelphia, where a refueling outage was started on March 27 and scheduled to last 18 days. There are now five confirmed coronavirus cases at Limerick, and 38 employees have been quarantined. Contractors and engineers on site have been quoted in recent news articles as saying they are quote-unquote terrified of the circumstances. Pennsylvania State Senator Katie Murth has called on owner-operator Exelon to work with federal, state, and county officials to create and implement a 14-day controlled quarantine protocol for all contracted employees who participate in the outage work. She expressed concern that many of the workers would move on to additional refueling projects, that's a given, such as the scheduled Beaver Valley refueling project in western Pennsylvania, as well as other nuclear facilities across the country, and that without proper safety and quarantine measures, officials were risking, quote, a massive spread of COVID-19 across this state and nation, to which we add, to say nothing of inside the nuclear industry and directly impacting their ability to operate safely. There has been no response to that proposed quarantine and testing regimen from Exelon or any other nuclear operator. Sequoia Nuclear Power Plant near Chattanooga, Tennessee, began its refueling outage last weekend, and the Tennessee Valley Authority has stated that it will employ 1,600 outside workers over the next several weeks to handle the work. Similar plans are being made for a May refueling outage at the Watts Barn nuclear plant located between Chattanooga and Knoxville in Tennessee, and that is where a worker has already tested positive for the COVID-19 virus. TVA mouthpiece Jim Hobson said any exposure to other employees was minimized. But Paul Gunter, director of reactor oversight for Beyond Nuclear, and our guest on Nuclear Hot Seat two weeks ago, said, The regulator and the industry know full well that they are rolling in a COVID-19 Trojan horse with these refueling crews traveling from one reactor site and community to the next. He added, 
The nuclear industry is using the COVID-19 guidelines to defer scheduled and required inspections and maintenance of critical safety components until the next refueling cycle 18 months away, and added, this is no time to be relaxing safety rules. The U.S. Energy Department has confirmed that nuclear sites across the country might soon run out of gloves, masks, and wipes, leaving thousands of nuclear power plant workers across the country without the protection they need to do their jobs. In New Mexico, Los Alamos National Labs has indefinitely postponed a project to release radioactive vapors into the atmosphere because staff needed for the task are working from home during the COVID-19 pandemic. In Russia, workers at Russia's nuclear power plants will be isolated from the general public and required to live in on-site clinics at their respective stations because of COVID-19 concerns. Russia also removed 178 employees from the Roopur nuclear power plant construction site in Bangladesh. Rosatom, Russia's state nuclear corporation said passengers on the flight would be tested for COVID-19 and will need to spend two weeks in isolation under medical supervision, a bit different level of concern than here in the U.S. On board the USS Theodore Roosevelt, almost 600 sailors have now tested positive for COVID-19. The Roosevelt is nuclear-powered, which means that a crew of at least 1,000 must always be on board because you can't leave a nuclear reactor alone at sea. A wildfire ripped through the Chernobyl exclusion zone for eight days until rain finally stopped it on April 14. Photos of radiation meters showed the radiation from the smoke was 16 times what is considered normal in the area. And despite official denials that any radiation reached Kiev, 30 miles or 47 kilometers away, Ukrainian authorities admitted on Tuesday that they had registered short-term spikes in cesium-137 particles in the Kiev area. Here's a story that provides two for the price of one. In March, one of the two Fessenheim nuclear reactors in France, the oldest and smallest in the country, closed. The second one will shut down on June 30th of this year. The plant was originally commissioned in 1977. German and Swiss officials have long demanded that French energy officials close the aging Fessenheim nuclear power plant, which is located on the border of France near Germany and Switzerland. French citizens have actively called for two, citing the plant's fragility, faults, and failings for decades to little avail. Now they're being closed, but their waste inventories sit perilously in pools adjacent to a canal, in a seismic area, and on top of Europe's largest groundwater source. That's the first part of this story. Here's part two. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. So the Fessenheim nuclear reactors in France, both number one, which closed in March, and number two, which is closing in June, have, of course, piles of nuclear waste. What to do with it? Well, in part, the French government has announced that its new Techno Center proposes to recycle metal from the dismantled plant and others around Europe into everyday household items. Like what, you might ask? Like casseroles and toasters and stoves and box springs. 
maybe even belt buckles. It's the French government's twisted way of recategorizing nuclear as renewable. But think of the advantages. I mean, the casseroles. You wouldn't have to heat them, just put the food in and the radiation would cook it by itself. Toasters wouldn't have to plug them in ever. Same with stoves, heat by themselves. Box springs, I'm not too sure about. But belt buckles, man, if that's not birth control, I don't know what is. And that's why, French Techno Center, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none nuts of the week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, all COVID, all the time. That's what our news cycle consists of, because that's what's new, and that's what everyone wants to know about. Even here on Nuclear Hot Seat, coronavirus-19 stories dominate what we're sharing. And to be honest, where else will you consistently find the COVID-19 nuclear connection explored in so many of its ugly manifestations? The nuclear industry is trying to take advantage of our fears by pushing themselves forward as our energy saviors. But in truth, with industry shut down, people at home, and energy usage low, we don't need nuclear reactors running right now. But the industry's sense of opportunism and entitlement, supported by endless propaganda press releases and talking points, threatens to create an even more dangerous, longer-lasting set of circumstances. Nuclear circumstances, radiation circumstances, with a half-life of 24,000 deadly years, undoubtedly longer than the novel coronavirus. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. This program is the one place you can count on to continue to report on the ongoing, evolving truth about the COVID nuclear connection. And to keep the show going, now more than ever, we need your help. So please, right now, consider sending us a donation and then do it. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button to help us with a donation of any size. Or the green button to set up a monthly $5 donation. Please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. It's easy to think that our national parks especially that gem of all gems, the Grand Canyon, are free from nuclear issues. But that would not be the case. We've covered Grand Canyon uranium mining and contamination issues in the past. But with the COVID-19 pandemic, the industry has discovered new and more venal ways to undermine people and the environment, and we thought that deserved a closer look. So Nuclear Hot Seat reached out to Allison Gitlin of the Sierra Club Grand Canyon chapter. She is conservation coordinator of the Restore and Protect the Greater Grand Canyon campaign. Allison has been a solid source of information for Nuclear Hot Seat through the years, and she joined us from quarantine in her home on Friday, April 10, 2020. Allison Gitlin, thank you so much for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. First, give us a little background on you and your work with the Sierra Club as regards the Grand Canyon. 
So I've been with the Sierra Club for about 10 years now. I am based in Flagstaff, Arizona, and I manage our Grand Canyon protection campaign. I am employed by the Grand Canyon chapter, which is the Arizona chapter. And we work on a variety of issues, including protecting Grand Canyon from mining threats, from development threats. We work on Colorado River issues. We try to protect endangered species. Uh, unfortunately, Grand Canyon has a lot that is going against it these days. And so we're trying to protect it for all those who love it and care about it and depend upon it. What are some of those issues that are working against it? In particular, the uranium mining issue has been a threat for decades now. Uh, it has a long history of opposition that has been led by the Havasupai tribe and others. There's one operating uranium mine right now. It's not extracting ore, but it's getting ready to extract ore. And it's been taking on water in the shaft, unfortunately, and, and having to deal with a contaminated water issue. And that's Canyon Mine. A few years ago, in 2007, there were thousands of uranium mine claims surrounding Grand Canyon in response to a spike in uranium prices, which has since dropped. But we're also working on some other issues. For example, there's a massive development proposed in Tucson, Arizona, just outside the park. And so we've been bird dogging that for a long time, for decades as well. We also spend quite a bit of time watching forest projects, logging projects, and forest restoration projects to try and protect forest habitats from harmful practices. It's my understanding that there's even an area of the Grand Canyon itself down near hiking trails that has been contaminated by a uranium mine. Is that so? Yes. So the Orphan Mine operated for years. It was originally a copper mine and then it began to extract uranium and it's been closed for decades now but unfortunately horn creek which is below it is permanently contaminated with high levels of uranium and so hikers who hike on one of the most popular trails in grand canyon are told not to get water from horn creek and that's a problem because springs in grand canyon are few and far between temperatures can really skyrocket there especially in the summer and this spring is permanently off limits. And also on the Grandview Trail, there is a sign warning hikers about potential uranium contamination, radiation hazard, because there's a former copper mining site and the tailings there are also contaminated with some uranium dust. And so hikers who are on the Grandview Trail also need to be careful about where they're walking so they don't track through that area. We don't tend to think of uranium mining dangers and radiation dangers when one thinks about the Grand Canyon, especially those who are hikers or backpackers, as I have been in my life. We just don't think about having to face something that seems as industrialized and modern as uranium contamination. Now, with the uranium mines that have been in that area for so long. What are the ongoing dangers that are faced not only by hikers and visitors, but by the Havasupai people who do live in the area? There are several abandoned uranium mines in the Grand Canyon region, and a lot of them are actually on the Navajo Nation, east and south of Grand Canyon. 
there's over 500 abandoned mines in that area and the Diné or Navajo people unfortunately deal with quite a bit of water contamination from these abandoned mines as well as dust exposure because uranium is really hazardous when you inhale it or ingest it when it gets inside your body and for people who are living on the Navajo Nation it is a reality that many of them have no running water have to drive to a water source and in many cases the nearest water source is contaminated with uranium from the last boom cycle of uranium mining, which occurred around the middle of the last century. The Havasupai people live at the bottom of Grand Canyon and they have water that is supplied by springs, these beautiful blue-green waterfalls, the world famous, and the identity of the Havasupai people is integral to being associated with these waterfalls. The name Havasupai means people of the blue-green water. And unfortunately, the watershed that feeds those springs travels below the plateau on the south side of Grand Canyon. And that plateau is where Canyon Mine is and where some other mining claims are. And so Canyon Mine is taking on water and it's completely unknown whether that water is seeping into the deeper aquifer, whether it will one day surface at Havasupai. But if it does, it not only threatens their drinking water and their economy because they depend on these waterfalls and this tourism that is drawn because of their beauty, but it also threatens their identity as a people. The problem with Canyon Mine is that there is not adequate monitoring to see where the water is going after it trickles into the mine. We don't know if water is seeping into the deeper groundwater because there are only two monitoring wells. One is owned by the mining company and it's actually their water supply well and that's tested regularly. And the other one is a U.S. Geological Survey dug mine that U.S. taxpayers paid for that only goes down a thousand feet and the mine shaft goes down 1400 feet. So there's really no way to tell if water is getting into the deeper aquifer, which can be as deep as 2000 feet in that area. And if it's moving towards the south rim of Grand Canyon or if it's moving towards Havasupai because we just don't have adequate monitoring to tell. We don't even know if the wells that are there are actually hydrologically connected to the mine, if they're upstream of the mine or downstream. There's so little that is known about the hydrology of the area. What is the impact that is now being experienced because of the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, in that area, be it on safety or monitoring or any of the other issues surrounding uranium mining in that area? Well, there's very little monitoring going on. So I would say it's the monitoring itself probably isn't affected, but that's because it's already so deficient that I don't know that it can get much worse. The problem is that the mining companies are trying to exploit this pandemic for their own profits, which if you ask me is completely immoral because there is already a legacy of health effects from previous uranium mining in this region. I mentioned already that the Navajo Nation has a few hundred abandoned mines, if not a thousand abandoned mines on it. And the 
Denae people are living with a legacy of health impacts and includes cancers, cardiovascular issues, bone and kidney issues. And a recent report even found that a large number of women on the Navajo Nation have uranium in their bodies and their newborn babies are being born with uranium in their bodies as well, according to the Navajo birth cohort study. We need to address that first and foremost. But instead of that, and instead of trying to alleviate those problems, the mining industry, which has been a source of all of these health impacts, is using the COVID-19 pandemic as an excuse to try and convince the government that they need to restart this industry. They are claiming that they need government bailouts because other nations are temporarily suspending their mining. And if other nations temporarily suspend their mining, they're claiming that it could be a national security threat to the United States if we don't have access to adequate uranium reserves. This is totally false. According to Arizona Public Service, which is our local utility and operates the largest nuclear power plant in the country, they say that they have adequate supplies of fuel, that their fuel chain is not threatened by the COVID-19 pandemic. But this raises a lot of questions because, first of all, if you can't mine for uranium in other countries, how are you going to mine for it here when everybody's shut down and staying at home already? You know, what is their respect for the safety of their own employees going to be, given their respect for the health of people in the past? And the fact that they're using a short-term human tragedy as an excuse to potentially create a long-term human tragedy for the purpose of profits, that to me is just completely immoral and hard to swallow. And so I am hoping that the federal government does not take their request seriously. And in response today, 75 different groups signed a letter that was sent to Congress asking them not to give any bailouts to the uranium industry. There's a uranium company that has been involved with this that was featured in some recent articles called Energy Fuels. And they abruptly shut down their operations in mid-March. Now, one would assume that is a good thing, is it? And is it connected to the pandemic? Energy Fuels is the owner of Canyon Mine, the mine that is flooding on the south side of Grand Canyon. Energy Fuels is also the owner of the only conventional uranium mill in the country, which is the White Mesa Mill, which is on Ute Mountain Ute lands in southeastern Utah. And they really want to keep that mill operating. The price of uranium has been very low for the last few years. And so the uranium mining companies as a whole have really been running a very unprofitable business. Energy Fuels, along with another company called UR Energy, submitted a letter, a petition to the federal government a while back now, over a year ago, asking, it's called a Section 232 petition, and they were asking the federal government to help them out because they said that the uranium domestic uranium industry was threatened and that the federal government needed to do something to protect them. And so they were asking for some kind of relief, like a tariff 
or something similar to that. The Trump administration, instead of giving them a tariff or giving them what they were asking for, instead they created a nuclear fuel working group and asked that working group to assess what was needed. The working group supposedly submitted a report to the federal government a couple months ago, but it has not been made public yet. In the meanwhile, Energy Fuels and this other company have sent a letter to the Trump administration asking them to do something. And the budget, the draft budget that Trump released a few weeks ago actually had quite a bit of money in it for a, what they called like a strategic uranium reserve. And you need to understand, we already have a nuclear stockpile. Like we already have an energy reserve. This is not something that we're deficient in, but they wanted to invest, Trump wanted to invest $150 million in the 2021 budget to create or enhance this fuel reserve, this uranium reserve with it's exclusively domestically produced uranium. And I need to clarify, when I say domestically produced uranium, the uranium is being extracted in the United States that we're talking about, but the companies are subsidiaries of foreign companies. And once they extract the uranium, there's no guarantee that it stays in the United States. So when we talk about a national security threat, we need to realize that we're putting more uranium out in the world, it's not necessarily all staying domestic. So, uh, you know, my interpretation of a national security threat is clearly different than what Energy Fuels interprets as a national security threat. That's a new one to me. That's one that I hadn't heard of before, and that is frightening if the uranium can be mined here in the United States and then shipped to other countries that might not have our best interests in mind. Yeah, it can go anywhere on the planet where people are willing to pay the most. And the American people are not getting royalties from any of this. These are hard rock mines. They're governed under the 1872 Mining Act. So just like any other hard rock that's mined, we don't, as taxpayers, get any profit from this. This is extracted off our lands. We often lose access to some of our public lands if these mines are you know a national forest a bureau land management land and it can go anywhere it can be shipped abroad and we are not only stuck with the environmental cleanup in many cases but we're also stuck with the health effects and the costs associated with that so it's frustrating to say the least what other impacts has the current pandemic had on uranium mining or any of the radiation issues that you face? Well, the pandemic itself, you know, I, these companies were struggling already. Like they're claiming that it's because of the pandemic, but I can give you a quote from this letter that they sent to the president. They say that you know, they're talking about the oil industry and how the oil industry has been struggling with declines in market value. And then they say, we understand those pressures because we have been struggling to manage them for several years. And the COVID-19 related economic decline is only worsening the situation. They say the mines are suspending operations and people in our industry are losing jobs and our industry is on the cusp of complete collapse now they are using this pandemic their industry was on the cusp of collapse already because the price of uranium has been really low it's not 
the pandemic's fault. It's their own problem for investing in a dying industry. And in the U.S., especially in Arizona, our environmental regulations at Canyon Mine and elsewhere are very weak. And so, you know, most of the uranium we're getting in this country is coming from allies. Other countries, you know, I would argue that we shouldn't be using nuclear power because we don't know how to control the fuel chain. We should be limiting our use of uranium and other nuclear fuels because we should be looking to alternatives that are cleaner, that aren't having the health effects. But, you know, if they're claiming that this pandemic is the problem with their industry, they're just manufacturing this right now because they already were suffering. Any other issues that involve the uranium mining or radioactivity issues and the Grand Canyon that you think are important for our listeners to know about? Yeah, we have a bill before Congress right now, actually. And, you know, unfortunately, with this pandemic, this is not something that's probably going to move forward right now. And we understand there's other priorities, but it's something that we will continue to advocate for in the future. And that is the Grand Canyon Centennial Protection Act. It was introduced by Royal Grijalva and others in February of last year. And this would make a temporary mining ban on lands around Grand Canyon permanent. So right now there is a 20-year mining ban on lands surrounding Grand Canyon. It's only a ban on new claims and new mines. It doesn't, unfortunately, stop those mines that have been grandfathered in, like Canyon Mine. But this Grand Canyon Centennial Protection Act would make that ban permanent on about a million acres and would protect Grand Canyon in perpetuity. Canyon Mine and others like it are very short-lived mines. They expect to be mined out in under five years, but the contamination is permanent. It's forever. We don't know how to control these substances and we don't know how to clean them up. And so this act passed the House and it was introduced in the Senate by Kirsten Cinema, and it is you know unfortunate that the timing is really bad because this is this bill and similar ones have been introduced many times over the last few years and this is the furthest we've seen it go so it was really exciting to watch it pass out of the house but unfortunately it's it's probably stalled because of COVID-19 for a while but I really encourage people to call their senators and tell them that Grand Canyon belongs to all of us it's a crown jewel of our national park system it needs to be protected By its nature, it is a deep canyon and everything flows into it. It's the low point in the area. And so by protecting the highlands above it, we are protecting Grand Canyon. And I think a lot of people don't understand that relationship that, you know, they're like, well, these are lands outside the park. The park is protected. The park is protected, but the park is subject to everything that happens above and around it. What about Canyon Mine? What's happening there? Canyon Mine, as we've talked about before, has been taking on quite a large volume of water every year. In this last year, it took on about 10.5 million gallons of water. And that water has extremely high levels of uranium and arsenic in it when it's being pumped out of the mine. The mine operators are 
largely spraying this water into the air to evaporate it. They're collecting it in a pool and in tanks on site. And what we found out recently is they're also using this water to spray on the site for dust control. And so they're using contaminated water and spraying it on site for dust control because of a loophole in Arizona law that governs the use of water. If they put it in a tank before they use it, they are actually able to use it however they want is what they're claiming. And so they've been in an argument with the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality over how this water should actually be regulated. And so as of this moment, I don't think that argument's been resolved, but there has been some back and forth. We've been monitoring the situation closely, as you can imagine, trying to figure out what's going to happen there. But in the meanwhile, there's still water flowing into that mine every day and they're pumping it out. And when they're pumping it out, it has quite a bit of contamination in it. Now we know that there is some potential for water to percolate into the rock in the mine shaft because there was a percolation test done and it was found that there is potentially the capability for water to migrate into the rock. But we don't know anything about the hydrology in the area. The mine is surrounded by what's called a karst system. It's a limestone system that has a lot of cracks in it, caves. Uh, it acts kind of like a pipeline system. And we don't know where those cracks are leading to. We don't know where water is capable of moving. There was a study on the north side of Grand Canyon that found that in some cases, water could move very quickly. They injected a non-toxic dye into a few sinkholes on the north side and they traced them. And in some cases, they couldn't find where the dye went. In other cases, it moved about 2,000 vertical feet and several miles horizontally within a month. Uh, in other cases, it took a few months to get places. There were places where it flowed from one sinkhole north and then from an adjacent sinkhole, it flowed south. What we know is that the hydrology is complicated. But on the south side, we've never done anything like that. So we don't know where any water is moving once it leaves Canyon Mine, or if it's leaving Canyon Mine. And to me, it's just criminal that we're not doing the science because the temporary mining ban that was instituted surrounding Grand Canyon was actually instituted so that more science could be done. And that science has consistently been unfunded. And so what's happening is that 20 year time clock is ticking. It started in 2012. We're now eight years into it. That clock is ticking down and the science that the US Geological Survey wanted to do originally is not happening. And so we're not finding out where this water is going. We don't know where it could go. So it could be in places where, say, somebody who is hiking or backpacking the Grand Canyon, who goes to a stream or a water source where they think, okay, this is fine, I can fill up my water containers here. They actually may be exposing themselves to water that has uranium in it. It could emerge at some point. A lot of the South Rim Springs are now being monitored by not by the mining company, you know, it's being, they're being monitored by either the National Park Service or university scientists. And so there are, there are sampling efforts going on on the South Rim. And luckily we haven't seen anything emerge yet. 
and the same Havastify, they're starting to be some monitoring there. But the problem is that once it emerges at a spring, it's already too late. If we find it emerging in a spring, we do not know how to clean up groundwater. And so we need to, well, first of all, we should be shutting this mine and trying to figure out how to stop the water from flowing in the first place. But we need to stop the flow of water long before it gets anywhere near the springs. And the only plan that the mining company has is if there's indication that uranium is moving into the groundwater, they'll pump it out of the mine shaft faster. That is literally what it says in their permit. That is their only solution that they offer. And I mean, this is, this is Grand Canyon. The water could move very slowly in some cases, but you know, what does that mean if you're the Havasupai tribe? Does a hundred years or a thousand years mean much to you? I'm sure they plan to live where they're living for way longer than that. You know, they've been there since time immemorial, pretty much. And so why aren't we preventing any contamination from going anywhere near their water supply or into any of the other springs in Green Canyon? We just don't have enough information to do this safely. What, if any, progress is capable of being made with people being on lockdown? Can you actually go out to some of the wilder places or are you, like the rest of us, sitting around your living room talking with people over Zoom? Well, Grand Canyon National Park is closed for the health and safety of its employees and residents, which I think is really important. So we support that closure we think that it's important that people are staying safe and we saw what was happening on the trails there and unfortunately a lot of people are using this as a pandemic vacation which is putting other people at risk so we support that closure you could still drive out and go look at canyon mine but honestly what i encourage people to do you've got a lot of time at home and i know a lot of people are spending a lot of time online and communicating with people now is a great time to call your senators, ask them to support the Grand King and Centennial Protection Act. You can write a letter to the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality. They're actually in the process of issuing a new permit to Canyon Mine, what's called an aquifer protection permit. That is what the document that outlines the responsibilities of the mine to protect the groundwater. And you could tell them that you want the strictest possible conditions in this permit. You could tell them that you don't think that Canyon Mine should be operating at all. But I do encourage people to call their senators and let them know that this is really important, that this bill needs more co-sponsors, and that it's something that constituents support. We will, of course, have any links that you can provide to the necessary offices. Also, are there any sample letters or wording that we might be able to pick up to plug in for those people who aren't immediately upfront and personal familiar with the issues? I can give you a link to an online letter that people can send that will go to Congress and ask their senators to support this. Yeah. Terrific. We will, of course, have links to all of this posted on this episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. Anything else? No, I just want to thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you for taking the time, Allison. We always are pleased to be able to hunt you down and talk with you. <laughs> and you stay safe. Be well. You and all your loved ones and your fur baby as well. And thanks for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat.
Thank you. Allison Giplin, Conservation Coordinator of the Restore and Protect the Greater Grand Canyon Campaign of the Sierra Club Grand Canyon Chapter. We will have links up to their website for the letter that the nuclear industry sent to the Trump administration and a letter just submitted by 75 different groups opposing a uranium bailout. They will be on NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 460. An update on the Kings Bay Plowshares 7. These are seven Catholic peace activists who performed a peaceful action on April 4, 2018, protesting the nuclear weapons aboard Trident nuclear submarines at the Kings Bay Naval Base in Georgia, 38 miles from Jacksonville, Florida. They were arrested, tried, and on October 24, 2018, all seven were found guilty of the charges, which could lead to 20 or more years of imprisonment for each of them. Sentencing has been delayed for more than two full years because, according to the group, it's an extension of the cruelty with which the government has treated them and punishment that cannot be claimed as time served once they are sentenced. Well, we have heard from one of the King's Bay Plowshares 7, Patrick O'Neill, who was our guest on Nuclear Hot Seat number 452 from February 18, 2020, where we went into these issues and their motivations much more deeply. He wrote, Dear friends, the Kings Bay Plowshares have sentencing dates of May 28 to 29 for the seven of us. It's possible the sentences will be conducted via video conference if the COVID-19 issues persist. I feel pretty certain no prisoners will have to report to a federal prison before the virus risk passes, but I certainly want to be sentenced to house arrest in May rather than remain under curfew, which does not count towards my sentence. I have been under house arrest curfew for 22-plus months now, and I get no credit for it, meaning towards his overall sentence served. He continues, so I'd like my sentence to finally get started. Peace and blessings and thanks for your love and support, Patrick O'Neill. I feel the need to point out that Patrick O'Neill is 71 years old and is the father of eight. We wish him and all the others a gentle sentence, shortened and delivered with compassion. One can only wait and see. Here's today's final thought. Looking at the COVID-19 nuclear connection as intensely as I have for the past month, I've been trying to find an angle that could be used at this time of industry vulnerability to shut it down permanently. As yet, I have found no answers, but I have collected a lot of thoughts. We already know that when we approach the nuclear industry about the deadly nature of their technology, any response we get from them is going to come from arrogance and greed, cover-up, propaganda, and when all else fails, bullying and ridicule of the speaker or writer. As we've seen for years, nothing we put forward, no arguments, logic, statistics, studies, footnotes, charts, graphs, photographs, visuals, anything 
Nothing will get them to change their minds, their hearts, or the way they do business. You see, the nuclear industry doesn't care about the future, except as it impacts their companies and executives' financial bottom line. So they certainly don't care about your future, be it financial or health or genetic. They don't and won't care unless we make them. So hang with me on this one. Many of the workers at nuclear reactors are unionized. They're members of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, the Utility Workers Union of America, AFL-CIO, perhaps others that I don't know of. Yes, undocumented, non-union workers are regularly hired on to do the dirty, difficult, and potentially dangerous work shunned by regular employees. But right now, even union employees aren't getting the protections they need from the nuclear industry management when it comes to COVID-19. Indeed, they're all being put at ever-increasing risk from the influx of a 1,000 or more workers per reactor brought in to handle refueling, a problem that could be fixed by just shutting down the nuclear reactors, at least for now. So the question becomes, nuclear workers unionize nuclear workers. Where are your unions? Why aren't they fighting loudly and publicly for your safety from COVID-19? Why is word of the horrific, impossible to social distance in a nuke and people are getting sick situation you are facing at Limerick getting out to the world only because of a few brave whistleblowers and one reporter Carl Hessler Jr., who has been following this with the backing of his editor and his publisher. That's the only reason we know what's happening there. And you know, Limerick is just the canary in the proverbial coal mine. There are 53 more nuclear reactors scheduled for refueling in 2020. And the same crews of workers, skilled workers, travel from reactor to reactor like a caravan of gypsies, going from community to community, itinerant crews of up to 1,500, going to a different location every three weeks to a month, bringing with them, yes, money they spend in the community on housing, food, drink, and other entertainments but they also bring whatever they've been exposed to. And with confirmed COVID-19 cases within the Limerick nuclear reactor, they are bringing with them all the pandemic exposure risks. Now, the nuclear-owning energy corporations can bluster whatever false claims they want about our need for nuclear-generated energy, how they're keeping the lights on, blah, 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 talking points, PR lies. But the truth is that there is now vastly reduced demand for electricity around the country. And in many parts of the United States, things are operating with an energy surplus without nuclear's involvement. So that highly touted need for nukes to operate to keep the lights on is PR rubbish. Further, as the pandemic persists, without that highly skilled refueling workforce, who go through multi-year education, training, and accumulated experience, without them, because they are going to be getting sick in ever greater numbers, these corporations have nothing but big, concrete, often radioactive buildings. Without skilled operators operating them, 
Nukes are dead. Reactors can't operate. And as you heard in two previous episodes of Nuclear Hot Seat, with Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear in episode 458, and Arnie Gunderson, a nuclear engineer of Fairwinds Energy Education in episode 459, the workers at these nuclear reactors are in danger of being infected with COVID-19 simply by showing up at work and doing their jobs. And from what we've heard from inside Limerick, these workers, engineers, contractors, being forced to work without social distancing or protective personal equipment in a COVID-19 environment, these people are terrified. This is a time of the industry's greatest vulnerability. For vastly different reasons, those outside the industry who work to shut it down and those who work in the belly of the beast and their livings are based upon it, these two groups have interests that are aligned with each other. So how can we leverage the discontent and fears of those working inside nuclear reactors? Are they, the workers, the chink in the nuclear industry's armor? And how can we support, encourage, and help these workers stay safe as they put their work on hold? so they can safely quarantine and social distance from the virus, while also exempting themselves from proximity with the other invisible danger they face, radiation. So, this is for you, the listeners, including you guys at the NRC who are listening, because I know you are. I invite you to put your thinking caps on. What would it take? What information campaign, talking points, worker outreach, union involvement, or who knows what. What would it take to throw enough grit into the nuclear machinery to force it to grind to a halt? How can we parallel the invisible threat of COVID-19 with the invisible forever threat of nuclear radioactivity so that enough people get it and we finally stop nukes? To be honest, most of us have a lot of time on our hands right now. So what are the possibilities? Think it through, come up with anything you can, and any ideas, send them to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com. I'll feature the best of them on an upcoming show. Because now, for this hopefully brief moment in time, even nuclear engineers deep within the belly of the beast are starting to see that they, too, are in their own nuclear hot seat, and they are terrified. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 14, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Democracy Now!, CBS News, usnews.com, commondreams.org, phoenixvillenews.com, timesfreepress.com, missoulacurrent.com, kdvr.com, bologna.org, neimagazine.com, defense-blog.com, theguardian.com, uk.reuters.com, dailymail.co.uk, Tim Deer Jones, and the totally captured nuclear industry fools at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Yeah, you guys who are listening in.
If you haven't already done so, go to our Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page. You can like it. You can share it. You can respond to a post. If you leave a comment, I will respond to it. It may take me a while, but I will get there. Now, if you want to make certain that you don't miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down just a bit, and look for the yellow bar that goes across. That's our new opt-in box. Just put in your first name and your email address, and you, yes, you, will be getting in the email every week one email that has the link to the show. It has a brief description of what's in the show. And a new feature I'm including is a tweet length post that you can copy and paste into your Twitter or your Facebook accounts to get out into the world and help people continue to find Nuclear Hot Seat and our coverage of the COVID-19 nuclear connection. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, you know, We've got this big old honking website there, nuclearhotseat.com. We welcome you to go there and poke around and see what you can see, find what you can find. More than 450 episodes are up for you to look through. They're all available. Check it out. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, that's another time to send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This show is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And if you know of any community radio stations that are looking to pick up a good program, I like to think of this as a good program, and after nine years it should be, again, email at nuclearhotseat.com. I will be happy to consider your information. It's where some of my best leads come from. This is Libby Halevi of Heart History Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that if there's a nearby nuclear accident during the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown, your choices are A, continue to self-quarantine at home despite radiation levels, or B, evacuate to parts unknown where you will have no ability to social distance and you still might be hit by radiation. So, hey, guys, which would you choose? flip a coin. Sophie's choice. It's tough. And that is your nuclear wake-up call. Because if that doesn't rob you of sleep, what will? So just make certain you don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.